Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Your Week with St. Luke's, our weekly podcast that explores this week's scripture so you can walk through your week wrestling with the text alongside us as pastors as we move towards Sunday worship, where we'll connect with how we take this story and lead our lives following Jesus. I'm Pastor Melissa, and we are continuing our journey through the Gospel of Luke this fall. And this week we are on Luke chapter 16. So if you are not driving while you're listening to this, uh, maybe grab a Bible or open your Bible app and follow along with me today. Now, if you were with us last week, we had one of the most familiar parables, um, the prodigal son, or maybe after our conversation last week, you have a different title for it now. Um, But this week, we have a parable you probably haven't spent much time with, and for good reason. This week, we're looking at the parable of the dishonest steward, or the dishonest manager, depending on your translation. Let's read through it and let's see what we find. We're going to be in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Jesus also said to the disciples, A certain rich man heard that his household manager was wasting his estate. He called the manager in and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give me a report of your administration because you can no longer serve as my manager. The household manager said to himself, what will I do now that my master is firing me as his manager? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too proud to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I am removed from my management position, people will welcome me into their houses. So one by one, the manager sent for each person who owed his master money. He said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, 900 gallons of olive oil. The the manager said to him, take your contract, sit down quickly, and write 450 gallons. Then the manager said to another, how much do you owe? He said, 1,000 bushels of wheat. He said, take your contract and write 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted cleverly. People who belong to this world are more clever in dealing with their peers than are people who belong to the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to make friends for yourselves, so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful with little is also faithful with much, and the one who is dishonest with little is also dishonest with much. If you haven't been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? If you haven't been faithful with someone else's property, who will give you your own? No household servant can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be loyal to the one and have contempt for the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now, once you get there to the end where it says you cannot serve God and wealth, things start to make some sense. But if you're like me, the story about the dishonest manager is a little baffling. The good news is we're not alone. This is one of the most confusing parables Jesus tells us. And even the commentaries and those who study scripture academically are not clear on what the intention or purpose of this parable is definitively. But we do have some ideas. So while last week we were wondering who the main character was of the story, this week we're wondering what exactly Jesus was getting at. And if there are any characters here to commend or imitate at all. So let's dig in and see what we can put together about this less than crystal clear parable. 
So we're going to start with a few definitions and explanations for the context of this story. First, this steward or manager, those terms are used interchangeably depending on your translation, so I'm going to use them interchangeably here as well. Steward is manager, manager is steward. So this term tells us that our main character was an employee of this rich man, an agent entrusted with the management of funds or property for him. And it seems like this rich man owns some land. He's loaned out this land to tenants who in return have to repay him with oil or grain. We can see that we are not dealing with a small family farm situation here, though, because the amounts that these tenants owe is sizable. Somewhere around 900 gallons of oil and as much as 1,000 bushels of grain. This is a major commercial enterprise we're dealing with. Now we open in the story with charges that have been brought against our manager, our main character, for squandering the rich man's money. Now you might see the little tie back to the story of our prodigal last week who also squandered money. However, here we only have an accusation, and this money was not his own. It was not money given to him, but it was his boss's money. And it's at this point that, like in the prodigal son story, we get an internal monologue from the steward who is now making a plan of what he's going to do. He realizes he's about to be fired, so he wants to create a situation where he is going to be able to move on afterwards and garner favor with some of the local tenants so that he will have someone on his side going forward. So he puts his plan into action. He reduces the debts of each of the tenants. And he also knows that his boss will not be able to reverse his actions later for fear of losing faith with them. So it seems to be a win-win for the manager. And in the end, the rich man ends up commending the manager for his actions. Now, that's the point at which this story seems to kind of go off the rails. We were tracking all the way up to the point that the rich man approves of his manager's actions. And once the story's over, we get a series of interpretive statements that don't help clear up anything about the story, although the statements themselves are a little easier to interpret. But in trying to parse out what's going on in this story, there's a number of questions that arise about what exactly is happening, what the implications of each of those possibilities are, and how we add to or take from the story to kind of figure out what exactly is going on. What exactly was this steward doing? Was he cheating his master outright by reducing the debts? Was he actually trying to right a wrong by reducing the amount of the debt? Was that, was that reduced amount actually interest that was being charged, which religious law didn't allow for? They called that usury or charging interest for debt. Or was the manager being self-sacrificing? Was the amount that he was reducing the debt actually the commission that he would have received for collecting the terms? Now, if it's one of those first two possibilities, the steward was, in fact, taking money from his master. So the charge at the beginning of the story of, of squandering his master's money was more likely legitimate. But if it's the third option, we have a different understanding, and his actions were, in fact, legal. But the thing is, we don't have enough information in the story to determine which of these is the case, and thus we don't have a clear picture on how to interpret what or who in the story that Jesus is inviting us to emulate. 
Now, to further complicate matters, there are different ideas of where the original parable ends. Um, like most of our biblical stories, we get a compilation of stories from a variety of sources. And so we know that the parable itself um, came from one source and that the statements afterwards around money and wealth actually were, were added from other sayings. But we don't know exactly where the parable ends and where the sayings begin. Does the parable end with verse 7? And at that point, you really just see the dishonesty of the manager because we don't get any interpretation that we even find in verse 8. Or does the original parable end with the first half of verse 8, so you still get the commendation of the manager? Or does it end with the entirety of verse 8, where we get a little bit of interpretation as well? Adding that statement that the master commended the steward changes the tenor of the whole parable. And then if we continue to read, it gets even more interesting. Now again, verses 9 through 13, those were those that were added on to, to be interpretive for this parable. Um, the sayings there likely didn't originate with the parable, but were added on because of common themes and key words. And so we can read this parable knowing that with the parable itself, there is not necessarily an agreed upon lesson to be gleaned or a consensus opinion on what in the parable we should emulate. So with that knowledge, and with that knowledge, we're given some permission. We're given some permission to explore and to ask questions and in some ways to find our own understandings throughout this parable. So let's, let's go down a few of these paths of possibility. Now let's first take the tack that we are meant to emulate the steward. We can see that his example shows us street smarts, ingenuity, the ability to think outside the box. Isn't that something we want for disciples? After all, <laughs> naivety and passiveness, those are not Christian virtues. Action, creativity, creative problem solving, those are the virtues we want for those who are leading the church, right? And the idea of the cunning trickster as hero of the story was actually a common theme in Jewish folklore. So this may not be far off. We even see it in our own Hebrew texts. Jacob, patriarch of the church, was a trickster himself. He deceived his father, he cheated his brother, and he eventually made off with most of his father-in-law's flock. When facing an uncertain future, don't we want church leaders to employ creativity, <laughs> creative problem-solving techniques? We want to be astute and willing to take risks, to use money wisely, especially to do good works, and also to gain some security so that the mission and purposes of the church can be continued into the future. Maybe here, Jesus is inviting his disciples who seek God's kingdom to embody the same shrewdness as the manager and urging us to use whatever our intellect offers in our daily work to also bring our discipleship and service to God. We see it in the interpretive passages, encouraged to deal with our own generation for the purposes of the age to come. We use our own gifts and graces in order to be children of the light. Now, like the supposedly dishonest steward who acts decisively to provide for his future, might it be that Jesus wants those of us who hear the gospel to know that just such a decisive act might be required for us too, that we should also be willing to stake our all on the kingdom of God. It's a pretty compelling case, but it's also not without its challenges. The theological challenges alone, and especially the seeming instruction to imitate some unrighteous behavior. You know, there doesn't seem to be a logical reason for the rich man to commend him at the end either. 
unless the rich man is going to employ his cunning tactics for his own purposes and business ventures. And while Jesus doesn't usually have great things to say about the rich, outright stealing from them is not often the directive elsewhere in scripture. So let's look at another potential interpretation. Now this one, we have to add some details and assumptions to the story that we don't find in the text. So let's assume that the steward would in fact receive a commission from the goods he was collecting. Well, if that was the case, we could see a Robin Hood figure that when he reduced the bills, he actually removed some of the interest that was charged, <laughs> reversing his master's sin of usury and giving what was owed back for the good of others. In this version of the story, we see that he was commended for following Jewish law to eliminate the predatory practice of charging interest and beginning to set the larger system right again. Now, this interpretation is potentially the most palatable for us because we can get excited about the justice-seeking element, but we don't have any indication that the amounts he discounted the tenants had anything to do with interest. So it's a little hard to land on this being exactly and definitively what's happening. Now, in a similar vein, we could also follow the assumption that the discount he gave the tenants was entirely his commission, no interest, just commission that would have gone to him. So a slightly altered Robin Hood approach in that way. And in this interpretation, he doesn't actually take from his master, but he gives self-sacrificially to make things right. Now, this also protects his master uh, because by law, a master could not be held responsible for the illegal acts of an employee. So when we get to the master's commendation, it tracks as the master would have been in a position then to judge the manager's activities objectively. That forgiveness of debts would also likely have helped the rich man's reputation with the community. His commendation in the interpretive section of this chapter comes from his recognition that worldly wealth is not what provides security but generosity and relationship. We can take from this interpretation the understanding that we also need to recognize that our wealth does not protect us, and we are better off sharing it than hoarding it. Our stability and our security are related to treasure in heaven, not treasure on earth. Yet again, though, this interpretive line of thinking requires assumptions to be made that simply can't be found directly in the text. We do not know that the discount the manager was offering had anything to do with interest or commission. Now, finally, we might just consider that the steward was simply dishonest. He wasn't seeking good for the poor. He didn't give away his own money. He really was just looking to protect himself in a precarious situation. Now, in this scenario, the steward doesn't seem to be the model for us. <laughs> he seems to be showing us the dangers of ulterior motives. He shows us the dangers of, of stealing. Um, that even though the poor benefited, the motive and the end of the day was self-serving and thus problematic. Now, this is actually the easiest interpretation to take because we, we don't actually have to add anything to the parable or the interpretation to be able to land in this. And it's also the easiest interpretation to take if we assume the parable actually ends with verse 7. It's verse 8 that starts to get complicated because you get that commendation from the rich man. And then if Jesus goes on to praise the steward, he now contradicts much of his other teachings about money. Or could it actually make sense? 
And we are to assume that this rich man and this landowner sees the value, as I had mentioned earlier, of the steward's shrewdness and now intends to employ that shrewdness for further trickery to unjustly grow his business. Or the steward and the, the, the rich man about to get in cahoots with each other. Does he recognize that a small loss now gains him much if he uses the manager's cunning for his own good? Is Jesus or is Jesus not asking us to idolize the steward? That is the real conundrum here. Are we more confused than ever? <laughs> well, let's talk about what we can take away from this parable in the Gospel of Luke. First, we know that this is a recurring theme. Money and how it should be handled and utilized is something Jesus, Jesus talks about pretty much more than anything else. We know that hoarding it or taking advantage of the poor are right out with Jesus. We know that Jesus offers warning after warning that wealth must be handled wisely. I mean, in just this chapter alone, we start with this parable and we end with the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, both beginning with the statement, there was a rich man, signaling that it might be important to pay attention if you find yourself in that category. And if we keep reading after this parable, while the parable is addressed to the disciples, the next verse, verse 14, tells us the Pharisees, quote, who were lovers of money, <laughs> overheard everything and sneered at Jesus. In verse 13, even if we can't 100% land on a moral of the parable on its own, in verse 13 we get Jesus telling us the moral of the story, a warning about money as a rival to God. This clearly was a parable meant to be commentary on the use of material possessions and an instruction for followers to act faithfully with what they had, always giving primary allegiance to God. And that regardless if we have little or if we have much, the key question of discipleship is if we will be faithful. How does whatever wealth we have serve the purposes of God rather than ourselves? You know, this image of the steward is used throughout scripture. Paul uses it. We see it in 1 Peter 4.10 as a metaphor for all believers as stewards who should, quote, serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. We see it in early church writings of Ignatius. And throughout all of these, these images of stewards, the key duty of a steward is to be faithful. It's where we get our word stewardship. And it's a word we use around here often to talk about financial giving, uh, but also stewardship of life, of all of our resources. What does that faithfulness look like, both in little and in much? You know, Fred Craddock comments on this. He says, Most of us will not this week christen a ship, write a book, end a war, appoint a cabinet, dine with a queen, convert a nation, or be burned at the stake. More likely, the week will present no more than a chance to give a cup of water, write a note, visit a nursing home, vote for a county commissioner, teach a Sunday school class, share a meal, tell a child a story, go to choir practice, and feed the neighbor's cat. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. You can't serve God and wealth. But how might you serve God with whatever you have in faithfulness? If you have wealth, maybe that's serving with your wealth. If you don't have material wealth, what kind of wealth do you have? 
And how are you being a good steward?